Awesome. So thank you, Dr. Jones. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be talking about behavioral economics in a couple different applications. And the very first thing I think you kind of need a little bit is a context. So who am I and really why should you care? <laughs> um, that's always the question I have whenever I go to presentations and I'm listening to people and I'm like, but why should I listen to you of all the people to talk about this? Um, so I've actually been working in childhood prevention of obesity for about 10 years now. So since I started my undergrad at Boys and Girls Club, they actually put me in charge of snack, which I felt, you know, now knowing all these regulations and things, and I'm like, this was a gross underestimate of, of a high school recent graduate and their ability to care for children. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's kind of been a very formative experience for me and, and really encouraged me to get more involved in this. I was a competitive cyclist for six years and uh, six years, so I got to um, travel the world and ride bikes, which is really awesome. And I eat, which obviously makes me an expert, right? So um, I do have my, uh, my RD and my CDN, and I also have experience in business. So I've got three degrees in, in business as well. So I kind of came into nutrition from a business perspective, and I've always had that as the bottom line in the back of my mind. So what we're going to do today from the very beginning is I'm going to talk why school food. Why do we work in school food? And then I'm going to shift gears and do an introduction to behavioral economics. What is this buzzword that everyone keeps throwing out? And why do we care about it? Six principles. We're going to talk about six principles that can be used immediately in any food environment to increase consumption, increase participation, or decrease waste. And then finally, I'm going to talk specifically about the Smarter Lunchrooms movement and application of those principles in school environments so that we can see if we are feeding kids or feeding garbage cans. So from the very beginning, though, I do want to give you a little bit of uh, background. I've had the pleasure for the past four and a half years to work with the Cornell Food and Brand Lab. This is a tandem lab with the lab that I represented, the Cornell uh, Center for Behavioral Economics and Child Nutrition Programs. You know, they say the longer the title, the more money you get. So we went, we went for broke on that one. Um, so the Cornell Food and Brand Lab is actually a consumer behavior research lab. And what they do is they apply consumer behavior marketing principles to adults. So why do adults make the decisions that we make when we go into food environments? Particularly, like, why do end caps draw us when we get into grocery stores? Um, and recently, they wrapped a study looking at tofu that shows that the average adult American equates tofu with punishment. Yes, it is laughable, but it is also very true. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think the average adult American would be like, tofu equals punishment? This is where you can talk back to me. Like, this is an interactive piece. <laughs> Okay, so maybe they don't have experience with it, or maybe they haven't had it prepared in a manner that they're familiar with. Because you're taking away something they like, like It's a substitution. Okay, so maybe you're being, it's being substituted into their diet. What else? It's a punchline. Oh, you're one of those, right? You're one of those, the people that eat tofu. Right? It doesn't even sound good, tofu. Like, it implies feet. Right? There's a lot of wonderful and horrible things associated with it. But think about it. When do people get told they should probably eat more plants? When they're, when they're diagnosed with a disease. Right. Right, when they're sick, right? They're in a hospital. They've had a sentinel event. Their lipid levels are crazy. And then us dietitians come charging in. And we're like, we're going to save the day. We've got tofu, right? It's kind of like meat, but it's not. You can, like, press it into the shape of meat if you'd like. And they're looking at you like, What? Why? What have I done? I've lived so well, and yet my life is over, right? So what is that, though? Thinking about this, and now I'm going to shift gears a little bit. What does that have anything to do with kids? What does tofu equal punishment for the average adult American have anything to do with kids? <gasps> no. No. I can't believe it. You should have. No, it's beautiful. This is great. <laughs> so, yeah, what do you think it has anything to do with kids? Well, I'm about to teach nutrition through the life cycle, so I'm reminded kids are a part of culture. Kids mm. learn about food from the people who feed them. So we're not these autonomous little life cycle stages. Yeah. We learn from our environment. We learn from the people around us. We learn from people we come in contact with. And... That's where the Ben Center comes in. That's where I take all of this consumer marketing behavior stuff and I applied it to kids because I really wanted to know, do kids behave the way 
adults behave? And how can we nudge them in certain behaviors so that we can actually encourage change without having a lot of aggressive pushback on it, right? So do you think kids behave the way adults behave? What do you think? I mean, this is like a shout it out, like, yes or no thing. Like, oh, yes. Depends on age, right? Okay, so it's like 60-40. Like 60% of the time, they're like, I'm going to put on my lab coat today, go to work. It's going to be awesome. I love being an adult, right? 40% of the time, they're like, just because you're an adult, I'm not doing it, right? That's where it comes down to what kind of applications can we use to help encourage the majority of behavior change. Now, I've had the, uh, the distinct pleasure of working with uh, Dr. Brian Wansink, who is kind of um, one of the leaders in the field of food psychology um, and behavioral economics. And based off of some of the work that he's done, we know a few things. Like, for example, we know that we eat more when we're distracted, right? About 28% more when we're distracted. And that's why we, as clinicians, go out and public health um, Individuals go out and say, don't eat in front of your desk, right? Don't eat in front of the television. Leave the bag of chips in the other room. Go in, have your little snack, and if you want more, go get more. Now, interestingly enough, though, distraction can also be good for us, right? We know by eating with other people, even though we are distracted, we are more likely to try other foods. We are more likely to be more food adventurous when we're eating with other individuals. We also know that portion distortion just exists, right? If I give you a bigger plate, what are you going to do with it? Fill it. Challenge accepted, right? Thank you very much. I will now fill this plate, right? And we know that plates have continued to grow for the past 100 years. So if I compared your plate sizes today to the plates from the early 1900s, we would actually be eating off of the platters of the early 1900s. Like the whole chicken used to sit on your dinner plate, okay? We know that people fall victim to health halos. So if I gave two different kinds of granola to an average adult American, and I said the one on the right is a fat-free granola and the one on the left is a normal granola, which do you think they would eat more of? Fat-free, yes. In fact, they'd eat about 38% more of that fat-free granola. Why do you think that is? It's sweeter, tastes better, so food system stuff, right? What else? I earned it. It's fat-free, right? I can have another scoop of it. It doesn't count. So this is the health halo aspect. Health halos exist pretty much everywhere. What other kind of health halos can you think of? Gluten-free. Gluten-free, yes. You guys, if we just stop eating wheat, we're going to live forever. Organic. I like that one. It doesn't count if it was a happy free-range chicken. What else? Ooh, organic gummy bears. Even better. <laughs> Yogurts. My favorite, I really do love frozen yogurt shops, right? They give you literally a bucket to get frozen yogurt. And then let's be real, you're not putting fruit on that. Like no human is like, the first thing I'm going to do is cover it with fruit. No, you've got like a giant cookie bar. And then like in the back is like, mm, do you want some maraschino cherries? Okay. Yeah, so health halos exist. And then finally, we also know that, just kidding, my clicker doesn't want to work. We're just going to pause for a dramatic effect on health halos click. There it is. If you see it, you eat it, right? If it's out in front of you, the likelihood is you're going to eat it. Now, what's interesting about the seafood diet is that if we make foods that are healthful, really very visible, the likelihood that people will eat those is just as high as if it were candies or if it were dessert items, right? Now, oh, I always give that side away, so pretend you didn't see it. Just pretend. Clean slate, okay? Thinking about this now, let's shift gears and think a little more about school food. Think about what you think one word you could use to define school food. And when you get that one word, shout it out. Peas. Beefaroni. Cheap. Bland. Yummy. Okay. Political. Any others? You think that's pretty representative? Peas, beefaroni, cheap, bland, and, and a yummy, and political. Okay. Now, are these overwhelmingly positive or overwhelmingly negative? negative? Negative. Now, do you think whenever I do this activity, it changes depending on who's in the room? You know, it really does, it really does change depending on who's in the room. Um, most food service directors... 
give me words very similar to the words that you've created, and in about the same ratio. A lot of them are coming up with words like uh, wheat and uh, sodium and regulation and cheap and processed. And these are the people that are preparing and serving these foods. Now, why is that an issue? Why is this activity, why are the words that we came up with an issue? Does anyone know why school food got started? Why did the school food program begin? Because women went to work. It was an act of defense, actually. So yes, it was housed under the Department of Defense. And it was an act of defense during World War II when kids were not big enough to go off and sadly catch bullets, right? So we needed to make them bigger, stronger, faster. And then also it's a time of war. So we have two economic principles that are based off of the development of war principles. One is we need to make sure our walls are big enough, right? Basically, we need to be able to self-sustain. We should not have to rely on other individuals to maintain our population. Second, we have to make sure that we have big enough guys on the wall, right? Think of forts, okay? So we need to make sure that we've got big enough people standing on the edges, making sure no one can get in. The school food program did both of those because it provided food to every child in the nation and it used commodity food systems. So it's built off of war, all right? Now, what's interesting about that is that it was based on these war principles and on defense principles until 2010. 2010 was when the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act came in, and 2010 is when people were like, maybe we should reevaluate this. I have a critique of that very quickly. You, you may. say the DOD has shifted their focus toward obesity. Yes. And that maybe it looks like it's a sh and military readiness, and I, I know there's been a lot of things mm -hmm. that received some funding in the past to address childhood obesity mm -hmm. from DOD. Absolutely. Now, I'm not necessarily saying the Department of Defense has, you know, like, bad ideas. No. And in fact a majority of the work that we do is pushed by the military. But um, the National School Lunch Program, as a program itself, didn't really have a programmatic review until 2010. So they were operating under principles that were outdated, that were unrelated to what was actually occurring at the, the ground level in schools. So is it really a surprise that we're coming up with the words that we come up with? No, it shouldn't be. Now, I will challenge this and say that our word, or my word, is an, it's an opportunity when we talk about school food. Because we're putting good food in little hands, which makes lasting, lifelong behavior change. Now, that's my niece, and she's the cutest little girl we'll ever see in your life. She gummed that apple for like an hour and a half. She made no progress with it. It was like taking a tennis ball from a dog at the end of it. But, um, you know, the thing is, we're, we're getting decent quality foods into schools right now. Now, we obviously have some work that needs to be done, and I'm talking about a very small portion of the problem. But we're putting good food into little hands, all right? Now, how do we get kids to eat it? Also, fun fact about the National School Lunch Program, uh, just as of December 2014, they were serving over 300 or 30 million children in that one month. 30 million children got served, okay? We're participating in the National School Lunch Program. That is larger than, well, it makes it the 43rd largest country in the, in the, the world. Out of 230 some odd countries, the National School Lunch Program could be considered the 43rd largest. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about consumer behavior. Let's say, hypothetically, you've been at work all day long. It's a very long, tiring day, and you're driving home in traffic, and your significant other calls you and says, I need you to go to the grocery store and pick up bread. You're like, awesome. That's exactly what I wanted to do. Let's go pick up bread. Great. You get to the grocery store, you get into the bread aisle, and you realize you, they don't have your bread. What do you do? What do you think? What are, what are your options? They don't have the brand that you're looking for. They don't have the bread you're looking for. Okay, one, find a suitable alternative. Okay, I might do some comparison shopping, look at some nutrition labels. Okay, what are my other options? Okay, yeah, pick up pizza, buy a bottle of wine, sit on the ground and cry. All options. What else? Yeah, go to another location, right? I am no longer a consumer in this establishment because I came in seeking a singular product. This is what we call a consumer tea. A consumer tea exists every single time we make a food decision, and we make over 280 food decisions every single day. Now, obviously, there's a straight and arrow. I have 
a, a brand, the brand is there, I buy it and I can go home. Yay, but if that brand is not there, I'm left with two options, find a suitable alternative or I'm out the door. What's interesting about consumer teas is that they begin as young as age two. That is the earliest age that they've documented consumer teas being demonstrated. That's about the age when kids are like, I know I didn't ask for raisins, <laughs> right? Like this wasn't on my menu today. It might've been on yours, but it's not really on mine. So now that means that for the entire duration that kids are in schools, they are already operating under a consumer marketing mentality. They are already consumers. So even if we come in as public health experts and we've got this great idea that we're going to get rid of flavored beverages, right? Perfect solution. We're going to get rid of chocolate milk. Every kid is going to be super stoked, right? Take rid of, get rid of it. How are kids, kids have now been forced into a consumer tea. And they can say, okay, well, I'll find a suitable alternative, right? Like maybe I'll pick up that white milk. Or they're going to say the only reason why I was here was for the chocolate milk. That was the only reason why I was here. So it was nice knowing you peace. I'm out the door, right? Okay. So what does it mean for us? Basically, we have to help balance the equation. And that's where behavioral economics comes in. So very beginning here, what is behavioral economics? Behavioral economics is a very large, relatively new application of economic theory where we're applying economic analysis to decision-making patterns, right? Essentially, and in layman's terms, it is designing environments to encourage behavior change, all right? It takes into, effect, into account, rather, these three principles of economics that are pretty stable in traditional economic theory, rationality, willpower, and selfishness or selflessness, right? It challenges those. It says based off of behavior change, people are not rational. People do not exercise willpower and people maybe are not always selfish or maybe have an unbounded selfishness, all right? Now, there's obviously a lot of debate on this, but this is the foundation of it. And I'm gonna talk about a small part of it. Now, the primary tenet of behavioral economics that you should know and that most of Smarter Lunchrooms is based off of is something called choice architecture. Now, choice architecture is something every single one of us has ever, single, has ever done. If you've been in a room with small children or adult men, and that is designing the choice so they make the decision you want them to make so, without them ever even knowing it. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> for example, right, do you want to go to bed now or in five minutes? right? Either way, the decision has been made, right? You're going to bed. I'm being a benevolent dictator by asking you at what time you would like that to occur, okay? Now, what's interesting about this is that even though the decision has been made, the reaction to the fact that the decision has been made goes down because I believe that I've been given some kind of impetus. It encourages that individualistic belief, right? Like, I know I can change my decision, right? Another good example is, do you want to sit on the stairs or do you want a spanking? Either way, discipline's a coming, right? Pick your poison. Which would you prefer? Now, when I was growing up, it was always the opposite of whatever I chose because it was punishment, right? <laughs> so I would be like, I want, a, I want a spanking so I can go out and terrorize people faster. <laughs> My mom would be like, you're sitting on the stairs. Ooh, you always win, Okay. Now, what's interesting about choice architecture is it doesn't cost me anything because the choices are often equitable, right? Saying, do you want A or A when A is the only choice doesn't cost me anything. I haven't added anything else into that equation. Now, what's great about choice architecture in the venues of schools is that it already exists, right? We operate in an offer versus serve political environment. We know that we have to have a fruit or a vegetable on a tray. And that means it's pretty simple to say, would you like an apple or an orange with your meal instead of go back and get a fruit, <laughs> right? And it changes the dynamic. And what's interesting about the go back and get a fruit situation is that's pretty typical, right? Because we're having individuals that go out and apply policy with an iron fist, right? You have to have a fruit or vegetable. Now, when we're looking at choice architecture, we also know that there's a couple aspects of food psychology. First, we react, right? If I say you cannot have cereal, what's the first thing you think of? Cereal, right? <laughs> cereal. Is it all cereal? Is it just sugar-sweetened cereals? Is brand cereal? I'm pretty sure it's tree bark, right? I'm not entirely certain as to what the definitions are for these things. Another good example is if your doctor says, hey, you should probably work out. Like, you need to work out. How many of you leave the doctor's office or like, first thing I'm doing is going for a run? 
right? No, you start questioning. What do you mean, me? Why do I have to work out? It would be a little different if that doctor said, what kind of activities do you like doing? Do you like walking? Do you like gardening, right? And then you can say, mm, which do you prefer engaging in more often? A great example of this in schools, though, is something that <laughs> my lab and I lovingly referred to as the limits on ketchup story, the ketchup Nazi. So school food generally has an issue with condiments, right? right? It's great if we can get kids to eat carrots, but what if they have to douse them in ranch, right? Doesn't that negate the carrot? So schools now have new policies. You can only have a certain amount of condiments with your meals. So the ketchup pump became an issue, all right? Now, an administration decided that kids were getting too much sodium, too much sugar from ketchup, so they were like, we're getting rid of the ketchup pumps. Great. Okay. So they went to ketchup packets. Now, going to portion control packets, do you think that will affect behavior? Our research showed that it does. It does decrease the consumption of ketchup by about 5%. And that's laziness, right? Sheer laziness. Like, I can't even open the... Like, think of all the little kids trying to open ketchup packets. <laughs> or, if you've been in a lunchroom recently, all the little kids holding packets up, waiting for a monitor to come around to open the ketchup packet for them. Okay? So about 5% consumption reduction of ketchup. That's pretty significant, right? But it doesn't reduce the taking of, of ketchup packets. Kids can still reach in and grab as much, which means the back-of-house cost is still significant to the program. So the administration decided to take it a step further, and they made a ketchup Nazi. So at the end of the line, every kid that came out got a single packet of ketchup. One packet of ketchup. How did the kids react? Were they like, gee, thanks for making the healthy choice, the easy choice? What do you think? Probably not, right? I'll just tell you. I'm just, just going to stop asking. I'm just going to tell you. Okay. So what ended up happening in the high school arena, right? We had some young entrepreneurs in the mix. So some kids are getting ketchup packets. And they're like, you know what I can do? I can make a profit on ketchup, right? A black market of ketchup springs up. <laughs> kids are now trading ketchup like currency. I have a ketchup packet. You don't have a ketchup packet. What are you going to give me for my ketchup packet? Okay. Now we have other kids who aren't really into the game theory of the ketchup trade, right? So they're like, you know what? My mom buys this nice big ketchup from Costco. I'm going to bring that in. I can have as much ketchup as I would like, and I can still make bank offering some on the top to the other kids. Great. Now we've got ketchup in lockers. Who's super stoked about ketchup in lockers? The custodians, right? Because you know these high schoolers aren't like, you know, I'm going to carefully pack up my ketchup and put it in the locker. No, you've got like trails of ketchup smeared down the walls. This ended up lasting for about half of the school year, right? Because like any well-meaned policy, it started in fall, and it just escalated until holiday break. And at holiday break, all the kids left. They had their holiday celebrations, came back, and it seemed like the ketchup debacle had died down. Everyone in administration was like, yeah, we won. I knew it. We just had to wait them out, okay? So smart. I love being an adult, right? Flash forward to graduation. As seniors are crossing the graduation stage and receiving their diploma, they hand their principal A... Ketchup packet. Yeah. So not only did the kids react initially, right, they had created a culture in this school that had reactants built into it. Now, the kicker of this is, right, now we've got, like, oh, you can only put so much ketchup in your pockets, right? So we've got a nice big mountain of ketchup packets on this graduation stage. And who's typically in the audience at a graduation? Mom, dad, press right? Who really cares about the 2,000 kids we just sent out to go change the world? We have an issue right here in River City. We are having ketchup problems, right? And that's what the press is running. So the press runs a nice big story, and they're not calling the food service director and asking about ketchup. They're calling the super, okay? You messed with baby bear. I don't like it. Did I miss the memo? When did ketchup become a drug, right? I'm sorry. How does one abuse a condiment? Tell me how this works, okay? So the next year, ketchup pumps end up coming back, and the junior class that's now a senior class and had witnessed the previous class rage against the machine and win is now coming through that lunchroom like, <laughs> I knew I could do it. Yeah, well, I'm just going to have as much ketchup as I want. And now a legitimate ketchup abuse problem exists, right? <laughs> because kids are now coming through and they don't even want ketchup. And they're just filling trays of ketchup because this is like a symbolic fight against the man, all right? Same situation if you leave a toddler in a room and you're like, don't touch anything. I'll be right back. Right? You come back and they've licked everything. <laughs> they didn't touch everything. <laughs> you're just so smart. Now, the flip side of reactance is something called attribution. So this is the same coin on the same decision process. Now, attribution 
personally, I believe, is kind of like the public health holy grail. What it is is I made a decision, and I feel good about that decision, so the likelihood of making that decision goes up, all right? So doing it again goes up by almost 46%. So that means if I can get a kid to take an apple on a lunch tray and feel good about that apple, the likelihood, if they're put in a similar situation with that apple available to them, goes up that they will take that apple again, right? So this is kind of where we're trying to go with the behavioral economics piece. We also know a couple other things about food decisions. They're either deliberative or they're emotional. I'm not going to tell you which one I operate in more often than not, but it depends on how many cognitive resources you have available to you. How stressed out are you? What's the stimulation like in your space? What kind of peer group do you have around you, right? As a dietitian, I hate going to lunch with my friends who aren't dietitians because they always wait for me to order first. Is it a burger day or a salad day, right? This is kind of how we interact. Yes, ma'am. This is coming from just food psych. Uh, so the deliberate split yeah. into cognitive, rational versus scripted. Oh, absolutely. It's a, just a ro- routine. It's not emotional. It's not, you just, this is what I eat. How many, banana. Absolutely. You start getting into a pattern, like this is always my breakfast. I always eat a banana and yogurt. I always, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. This is also overlapping a little bit more with um, the, the price theory and cognitive theory, like why we make those decisions. So this is just the big overarching. I absolutely agree with you that we could divide them out further. 30,000-foot um, overview kind of thing. So when we're looking at that, though, right, thinking like the mall at Christmas time, like you walk in and there's like flashing lights, it's hot, there's small children screaming, there's a ton of like end caps that have popped up. You always end up coming out with like an extra bag of something that you never intended on buying in the first place. This also feeds into hot and cold decision-making patterns. Now, again, these are very large, broad patterns, but when you're eating in a hot state, we're eating for taste, convenience, size. This is very hedonistic. This is going to the grocery store hungry and without a list, right? You come out with a million things that could never make a meal. The flip side of that is the cold state, where we're eating for price, health information. It's much more logical, okay? Now, thinking about these two states, which one do kids (laughs) behave in more often. Yeah, they're in the hot state more often than in the cold state. Interestingly enough, um, I think Nebraska, the University of Nebraska just came out with a study that showed um, that as one ages, the wavelengths, like if you look at hot and cold state patterns over time, lengthen. So like as a child, they're much more erratic, whereas as an adult, they become more waved, I guess, over time. So knowing that, right, the likelihood that we're going to hit a kid in a hot state is a lot higher than it is in a cold state, which kind of helps us explain why coming at a kid like, you should eat your green beans, they're good for your teeth, might be the wrong message to be giving them because they're thinking, were the beans cooked in bacon? Because that's more my style, taste, convenience, size. And that's where the six principles come into play. Now, these six principles are pretty much visible in any food environment. I challenge you to not see them when you go out into the food environment now. So the very first one is managing portion sizes, okay? So we know, for example, right, if you are provided with a whole pie, it changes the view and satisfaction with your meal, right? So hypothetically, let's say I put a whole pie on the table in front of you. I come around, I slice off an eighth of a slice of pie. I give you that eighth of a slice of pie, but I leave the whole pie on the table, and I leave. How do you feel about your eighth of a slice of pie? Yeah, it's kind of small, right? I'm not feeling too good. How do you feel about me, the person who gave you the eighth of a slice of pie? Obviously, I'm cheap and stingy, and who made you the queen of pie, right? Why do you get to choose how much pie I get or don't? All right, now let's switch the situation, and let's just say I gave you an eighth of a slice of pie. You never saw the whole pie. How do you feel about that slice of pie? Yeah, bonus pie. <laughs> bonus pie, right? How do you feel about me, the person who gave it to you? You're the pie fairy. This is amazing, right? Thank you for my bonus pie. I really enjoyed that. Okay, I might not eat it, but I really like you for thinking about me. All right? Now, this happens pretty young as well. And in schools, if you think about a chafer full of 500 servings of mashed potatoes, right? 500 servings of mashed potatoes, and you're standing there with a half cup spoodle. Is that the pie situation? 
Yeah, it's exactly the same situation. So it's not really surprising when we look at the kind of reaction that kids are having when we're limiting certain foods to them. So one option that we have and that we know works is by portion cupping. Portion cupping things out provides a visual stimuli. This is the serving. This one into the 100-calorie pack. Now, if you're like me, the um, 100-calorie pack research... I was, I was not exactly 100% behind it when it came out because I was like, you know, snacks are supposed to be like 200 calories. So 100 calorie pack means I'm still eating two packs, right? <laughs> like that doesn't necessarily have the same impetus for individuals like myself or like individuals who work in nutrition because we're a biased population anyway. Okay. The other thing that we know based off of portion sizing though is that people tend to identify with my size portions, this is my size. Like, this is my, my, a my size Barbie kind of thing, right? So we know that this increases consumption of certain products. Now, one thing that you can think about in terms of schools, right? We're trying to limit the consumption of some products and increase the consumption of others. How could we do that in schools? What do you think? Well, one way we could do that is by limiting the visual stimulation of the whole pie, like the whole pie effect, right? So instead of having the 500 servings of potatoes out there, we're going to do a half pan of potatoes with a lid, and we're going to serve from under so that that visual stimulation of look at all the other potatoes you're not getting is gone. And you're going to replace that visual stimulation with, like, uh, an image of what a complete balanced meal looks like, so like a sample tray. Giving them a couple different sample trays along the line helps kind of say, which would you prefer to have, right? Going back to that choice architecture side. Now, one way that I can increase consumption of things that I might want is by using serving utensils and serving spoodles that are larger for items that I want them to take more of. Like what? Yeah, like fresh fruits and veg, right? How many times have you been given like a half cup spoodle of something that you're like, oh, maybe I only want like three beans? So you like barely even fill the spoodle? <laughs> right? Giving a larger spoodle even increases the default so that that default of three beans goes up. Now, thinking about um, waste, right? Doesn't that increase waste? It actually doesn't necessarily increase waste in schools. In our um, estimation, right, when we were going through and doing plate waste in these schools, waste did not increase by increasing spoodle serving utensils for those fruits and vegetables. Now, convenience is really big for us. You guys, we don't even have to get out of our car to get a whole meal. In fact, if you think about it, your face is like right at window height. Someone could just push food into your face if you wanted to. <laughs> just open your mouth and someone could feed you, all right? So convenience is really big for us. If I have to go out of my way or if I have to engage somehow to get something, the likelihood that you're going to actually do that goes down, even if we're highly motivated, all right? Now, thinking about that and in our schools, what that means is we're going to try to make those healthy foods the most convenient for them. And we're going to try to take foods that maybe we don't want them taking and make them more inconvenient. For example, taking a la carte snacks and putting them behind the register so that kids can't just reach and grab a cookie. Kids can't reach and grab one of those snack food items. The only things they can reach in and grab are apples, fruits, vegetables. Okay. Um, another application of this, and, and probably the best application that I've seen, is by putting a whole fruit bowl next to the register. It increased fruit sales by 102% just by putting whole fruit next to the register. So as they're standing there, it's an easy choice. It's really convenient. And consumption went up by about 22% when we did that. Okay. Um, oh, we skipped over visibility. That's sad. Okay, well, visibility is important, too. Apparently, I deleted that slide. Um, but convenience and visibility go hand in hand together, right? If you can't see it, you can't eat it. Whenever we did surveys with kids and we asked them, what kind of food do you want to see on the lunch line? Over 80% of them reported a food that was already on the lunch line. They just didn't know it was there, right? Like, oh, I want strawberries. Yeah, funny. They're right over here, okay? Except we don't necessarily have a space that encourages the visibility of these fruits and vegetables. So you'll notice things that are highly convenient are highly visible as well, Okay. Taste expectations is also really big for us because if it looks like a duck and it talks like a duck, it's a duck, right? So looking at these salads, these are all examples of salads that I was in school districts in and I saw, okay? Which salad is the most appealing to you? This one? Yeah, the Greek salad. What's wrong with the first one? It looks more like the makings of a salad. <laughs> looks more like makings of a salad. Do you think that's because we have a different idea of what a salad is? <laughs> is there like a whole tray? 
Yeah, so we've got saran just like half covering it. What does that imply to you when you see a pan with half covered? It, it's old, right? That's really old lettuce. It could be fresh. It could be brand spanking new lettuce. But it just gives you the implication that it has been, quote, unquote, saved, right? Or that someone got into it that shouldn't have been, right? That's what I I'm like. Someone got in there. They shouldn't have been in that lettuce. That was clearly not supposed to be opened. What's wrong with the second one? Yeah, this one, so this is using, this is using a boat service, um, which is pretty typical for, for um, middle schools. And with a boat service, the issue here is we have to saran them. And then because they're saraned, though, what do you think they do in terms of their prep after they saran wrap their, their salads? They prep them, they wrap them. Where do you think they, they have to cool them, right? They have to keep them cool because prep doesn't happen at service. So they go on ice and they get wet because it's a cardboard boat. Additionally, after going on ice, what happens if I've got 150 salads? There it is. Yeah, they have to stack them, right? So every salad that's not the top salad is now squished and potentially damp, okay? Not really that exciting. The difference here, obviously, we've got a clamshell, and our research has shown that clamshelling does increase the sale of salads at the secondary level, so high schools particularly, by about 27%. Um, it doesn't really impact elementary schoolers in our experience. They kind of negate. Like some higher-end schools will see a bump, but that kind of goes back and forth. There is no... So if I had to invest, if I were a school food service director, it would only really be at my secondary level if I had to invest in clamshelling. Um, but the difference here is the label. It says Greek salad, right? That's a pretty cheap intervention if you think about it. What does Greek salad mean to you? What do you, feta, right? My mind immediately goes to cheese. Feta, awesome. What else? Olives, crisp romaine, tomatoes. This is what we call a taste expectation. I have an expectation for what I'm going to receive and that increases satisfaction and also increases consumption. Oh, there's my visibility one. Yeah. Well, okay. Visibility is important, y'all. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad we had this talk. All right. Oh, I just put it in twice. Anyway, okay. Whatever. That's fine. Move on. So here's a great application of taste expectations. simple as the label. So labels have a lot to do with the way we process our expectation and follow up with our satisfaction with something, okay? And I think it's really interesting, and I've been kind of thinking about this question for a while now. Like, how do you know what a strawberry tastes like? Or how do you know what a strawberry is? Are we born with that knowledge? 
experiential? Does it have to be like a this is like here's a strawberry, or could it be like watching it on TV, or could it be image based? Like just like here's a picture of a strawberry. Could someone just describe a strawberry to you? Right, and I think that there's some studies that are coming out in terms of like the blind psychology and the de the definition of these different things. But what's interesting is, right, like you have this kind of experience, and then you put a little peg in your brain, and you start wrapping characteristics around what that is. And if that doesn't match what you have when someone says strawberry later, it's very upsetting. I don't understand why. Why does this not match what I thought I was going to be given? So. Taste expectations, very big. Probably one of the cheapest and highest return on investment actions that can be used in schools. The next thing we talk about is suggestive selling. You guys were constantly being sold something. I'm selling something to you right now. It's called Smarter Lunchrooms, right? I hope you'll try it. Now, utilizing these kinds of things and thinking about this, what does it mean if someone doesn't sell a product to you? What does it mean about that product? What do you think? You walk in, like let's say you go to a car dealership. No one approaches you to talk to you about cars. Right? It, it, it implies some kind of inherent valuation to the product. What does the product mean if you're not even willing to invest five seconds to tell me about it? Tell me about what this does. What is it for? What is it good for? Okay? So now think about all those words we came up with in schools. Is that an awesome sales pitch? Like if you went to McDonald's or even in schools, like, hey, kids, I need you to come back ready to work. Go eat your bland, processed, cheap food. Come back. Let's make this happen. All right. And then finally, we talk about setting smart pricing strategies. Now, you'll notice all of these are actually not talking about money because in schools, we're not talking about money because we can't change really how much it costs to buy a meal. But what's a unifying factor in all of these things? Is it talking about money or is it talking about value? talking about value, right? So we're going to take the suggestive selling aspect and we're going to apply a value statement to things. Now, what's great about schools is they're already working in combo meals, but they call them something else. They call them reimbursable meals, right? So now let's go back to taste expectations. What does that imply to a kid? Do you have a reimbursable meal? What, are you going to pay me to eat it? Right? Are you planning on paying me? Isn't that how that works? I have been after the USDA for years to try to get them to even change the vernacular. You're talking about an operational term. On the back end, I can talk about reimbursable meals as a food service director, but a kid, they don't need to hear reimbursable meal. What does that mean to them? Right? So we talk about the messaging. How are we framing the message to students? Now, we've talked a lot about rational decision-making patterns, but um, are kids rational? No, no, they are not. In fact, the most recent research indicates that kids will not fully develop their frontal lobe until they're 21 years old, 25 depending on gender, right? And I'll let you pick which one you want to be. <laughs> but that means, again, so not only are they consumers for the entire duration that they're in schools, they're irrational consumers. So we can't necessarily come at them with rational consumer marketing and messages. We also know that that means that they don't understand long-term consequences. You can't necessarily come at them with a message like, Johnny, don't eat that. You're going to be obese. Because he's like, I don't know what obese is. I don't know, what, what is that? I'm just going to keep going. And based off of the communication pattern that I have with adults, you're going to tell me when I hit the mark, right? So we're just going to keep going. They also don't understand the marketplace as they go skipping down the cereal aisle and all their favorite sugared cereals are right where they can touch them like someone did it on purpose, right? They're in a hot state all the time. I've talked about this, this constant up and down motion. And finally, they react to that paternalism. And we're not talking like high schoolers who are like, let's wait six months and stage a coup, right? They're like, you have five seconds until I melt down on the ground, okay? Four, there will be screaming. Three, I will bite. Two, everything off the shelves. One, everyone in this store is going to know it's your fault, right? <laughs> So that means maybe we need to adjust the way we think about things. Now, benefit is that most kids find at least one or two things that we want them to eat at least appealing, right? They actually do like them. So how do we get them to eat those things and develop this pattern of behavior change? And that's where the Smarter Lunchrooms movement comes in. Now, this is an application of those principles in a school in upstate New York.
So that was our pre-intervention. Now, um, I did want to digress briefly because I've been throwing out the term smarter lunchrooms movement a lot. And I did want to give you a little background about what that actually is. So we're using the behavioral economics principles that I've, been, I've already introduced to you. And what we've been doing is we've, well, I say we, I'm no, <laughs> I no longer work there, sorry. What has been done at the Ben Center is uh, partnership research with about 2,000 schools across the country where we were physically in those schools, collecting plate waste, collecting um, sales and production records. Um, it does have a proven increase in participation and a decrease in waste. What's really cool about it, though, and I think this is part of um, a lot of what we're talking about in public health is the contextualization of things, it's totally customizable. So you can pick and choose which you think your students will respond the most to. And if it doesn't work, you can change them. It doesn't have to be like, this is set. And I think that's what makes this a really beautiful policy addition to things, saying, would you like to choose things that you think would apply to your space? Um, it's low cost, no cost. Everything on the Smarter Lunchroom scorecard, uh, it costs less than $50 to implement, which is very important. And it talks about collaborative support. Uh, we also know, well, we also know my clicker is just being problematic here. Um, it was started at Cornell University as a, um, as a tandem unit between Dr. Brian Wansink and Dr. David Just, who is the behavioral econ economist. Um, and it's solely USDA funded. So that means we did not have industry bias coming in and saying, we need kids to drink more milk, or we need kids to try to eat more of this food product. All right, now there is inherent bias, obviously, in working with um, government institutions. But uh, it was all coming from one USDA grant. Uh, we worked with schools and districts, but then we've also partnered out with state organizations and private organizations. And this was all prior to getting into the policy side of things. So like the team nutrition application and the Healthier U.S. School Challenge application came after the state organization and private organization partnerships. So in 2014, so I started in 2010, and in 2014 we did a national survey of school food service directors and asked if they had heard about Smarter Lunchrooms or were applying any of the six principles that we gave at the beginning in their schools based off of quote-unquote Smarter Lunchrooms, and this was their awareness. Now the states that had the highest awareness were related to uh, a state, a very strong state tie that I had with that organization. Like, I had a very strong state tie to the Michigan Department of Education. Um, and you can also see, like, New York. Obviously, we were based in New York. And by 2015, it, it blew up. <laughs> um, in, a, in the course of a single year, it expanded almost fourfold. Uh, and a lot of this is because of the introduction into policy, the team nutrition application. Um, based off up to September of this year when I was no longer employed there, this was the direct impact numbers from uh, outreach. That's all a lot of people that I talked to. Basically through state organization meetings, doing trainings, come uh, partnerships with the School Nutrition Associations, which if you're working in schools, definitely partner through SNA. Um, they, they need it. Um, they were in, so as of 2015, as of this past year, they were here. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, they're in 30, they're 31%, sorry. I didn't realize that this, the white would be hard to read on it. Uh, they're 31%, but actually that's my graduate assistantship right now here at South Carolina is in partnership with Team Nutrition doing smarter lunchroom stuff. So they are right now, um, each state when you do team nutrition is a little different because they are looking at their state's needs. So South Carolina is focusing on the strike force zone, so the kind of Midlands belt. 
um, across the state. So awareness has gone up, but a lot of the state-based, uh, like, large SNA meetings were not done here in this state yet. Same with North Carolina. North Carolina took a, took a more extension-based approach where I came in and I trained 20 extension educators, and then they went out and did their own thing. Okay. Anyway, so I have a feeling in the next year um, these numbers will increase again. So uh, applications distinct. I know I do not have a lot of time, but I did want to give you some numbers. So you do know that taste expectations um, increases satisfaction, but it also increases consumption. So in elementary schools, when we took carrots and made them x-ray vision carrots, it doubled consumption of carrots. So not only were kids taking it, they were eating it. And the bean burrito became the big bad bean burrito, which was not my choice. Okay. <laughs> and it they sold out by the second lunch period just by adding that name to it. Um, what I've seen since 2009 when I got involved, or 2010 when I got involved with the Smart Lunchrooms movement, is that like a quarterly rotation of names is appropriate. So like even if you have the same menu cycle, you know, throughout the whole year, you do want to try a couple different names occasionally. If you can get the kids more involved, they tend to respond. Like for example, um, a couple districts did a really great job, particularly in elementary schools, assigning a different classroom to a different day on the menu. And then they got to create their own names. And then what kid isn't going to participate on their classroom's day, right? It became its own little inherent competition. And mm -hmm. Yeah. But the teachers were the ones who had control of the choosing mm. what they were going to eat. So the teachers found that they had the same choice that the kids were making, too. Yeah. So that the kids would know and be able to relate their meaning to the So one of the major issues in terms of behavioral economics is the training piece. There are a lot of different stakeholders when it comes down to schools, right? And you're completely correct in terms of, like, teachers also kind of regressing, <laughs> you know? Like, we did this one thing once, and now I've got too many other things, and I can't handle it. Um, <laughs> we did find, though, if we could give a curriculum-based package, here's the whole package. All you have to do is walk through step by, you know, like, this is the product that you're used to. This is how you describe it come up with a name based off of this, that the response was better. Yeah. Um, and that was done through partnership with Extension. Sorry. I feel bad that she's, like, <laughs> leaving the room. Um, okay, choice is really important. We know people are more satisfied. What's interesting about this is if I gave you your favorite candy bar and I asked you to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10, you would rate it, like, a 6 out of 10. But if I gave you your favorite candy bar and another kind of candy, you would still choose your favorite candy bar, but you would rate it higher on that scale of one to 10, and it goes back to that choice architecture thing. But when we did this with kids with a simple verbal prompt, do you want carrots or celery? They ate more of whatever they chose. So this is a, a really great opportunity to get kids to get more food in their belly as opposed to in the trash cans. Um, the contentious case of flavored milks. Um, <laughs> What's interesting about this is we don't necessarily want to change the purchase order or the, the arrangement of milk cartons because personally and as a dietitian, I don't care what kind of milk your kid drinks as long as it's milk, right? I hope your kid drinks milk. That's what it comes down to. That's my personal stance. It's not necessarily the stance a lot of others in nutrition have. But I really don't care as long as your kid is drinking milk, all right? With that being said, um, we looking at this, this is a middle school milk cooler when you look at it. That chocolate milk is stocked nice and full, even overly full, right? A kid doesn't even have to like lean to get to it. Next to it was all that juice, and then that white skim milk was like way back in the black abyss, okay? Now, as a middle schooler, like if a six foot three adult male has to go cooler diving to pull out a skim white milk, what's the likelihood that like a fifth grader's going to get it? pretty much nil. And so the national average right now is about four to one, four crates of flavored milk to one crate of unflavored milk in every cooler. What we were able to do is just rearrange it so that the chocolate milk was pushed towards the back because the kids who want the chocolate milk are still going to get the chocolate milk, right? And I'm not changing the purchase order, so I still have a lot of it. But I'm going to pull that white milk towards the front. So the kids who really don't care if it's white milk or chocolate milk, their default by nature is a skim milk. 
When we removed skim milk, or when we removed chocolate milk from the coolers, we saw a sales drop of 11%. Um, and that did come back up. I mean, a lot of us are like, well, what if we just wait them out, right? Won't it come back up? It does come back up, but it takes about four years. Four years is when we found, like, the sales evened back out, which makes sense if you think about the duration that people are normally in schools, right? That's about the shift of an age group, right, from elementary school to middle, middle to high, high now. So, yes, long-term removal of flavored milk will probably impact the nutritional value, okay? But immediately, it's not going to. And what's interestingly about this, or what's interesting about this also, if I look at this past August's participation numbers compared to last December's participation numbers, I told you last December was 30, 30 million participation. This past August participation was 18 million. Those are on the USDA's website. Yeah, it's kind of frightening. Um, okay. Probably those numbers aren't out yet. But when you looked at the two Augusts, it was still significantly lower. I don't recall the number off the top of my head, and I don't know why I didn't even think of looking at August to August. When they count those, mm -hmm. The, the community eligibility ones, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because of community eligibility? Go ahead. Community eligibility, um, originally, like, a, there's a good case study out of Chicago because they originally were very resistant to community eligibility applications in about 2011 is when they first got, when it first got proposed to the Chicago base um, or the Chicago public school system. And um, they, they only piloted in, like, maybe 10 schools at first. They did see a return on investment, but it took two and a half years. So it takes some time to, to get that back up. That's right. Right. This is not the food I eat. Um, this is a slide written by an economist, so I'm going to translate. Uh, basically what it says is on days when green beans and bananas were on the lunch line, kids didn't necessarily take green beans or bananas, but they took healthier foods overall. Right? They took fewer starchy sides. They took fewer a la carte snacks. Um, and we were kind of confused by this, like this interaction effect between like what different foods on a line, how they might interact with each other. Because we tend to think as adults of like food pairings, right? Like pizza goes with like a salad, which goes, you know. So we were a little confused as to what was happening here. And so the hypothesis right now, and this has yet to really be um, looked at more. This is an area of future research, I think. Um, but the hypothesis is a priming effect. So is there perhaps a priming effect for having certain foods that are quote-unquote healthy, right, available, out and about? Does that increase or shift behavior to a more healthful behavior? So another example of this is something that we've seen in um, restaurants, for example, where they line the walls with pictures of green, healthy green veggies and things like that, and the increase in the sale of those types of foods, right, the likelihood if you're surrounded by this kind of imagery that you're going to get like a bacon cheeseburger is lower, than if you're surrounded by imagery that is more um, casual or less applicable. Um, it basically, it, this argument here is pretty much just for school food service directors. I love salad bars. I mean, there's, there's issues, obviously, with, um, you know, like the uh effect. But um, wonderful, wonderful things. But most schools are underutilizing this piece of equipment because they only put fresh fruits and vegetables on it. Why is that a problem? Why do you think that'd be an issue? Yeah, it's hurting your own pocket at this point because a full reimbursable meal 
is not available to my student. So you've given them a great opportunity to get a fresh fruit, vegetable, salad, like that's fabulous. But from the bottom line perspective, you need to pair it with a couple other items that are required for that reimbursable meal in order to actually get the money in your pocket for it. Because even selling a whole salad, you're not gonna get as much back from the government as you would if it was a full reimbursable meal. Um, in this lunchroom, we were brought in to ask what we should price the salad. I promise I'm almost done. I know many of you are very busy people. Um, and they said, we just don't know what to price our salad bar so that kids will actually take it. Because they immediately jumped to, it's a price issue. Salad bar costs too much. That dotted line up in the upper right-hand corner is the entrance to the lunch line. That's where their salad bar was. Why weren't kids taking salad? Yeah, they had no idea they had a salad bar. When we interviewed them, they were like, we have a salad bar. Right? The only kids that knew that they had a salad bar were already in the cash register two line and were at the back. Right? So I, I love bell peppers. I'm a dietitian. I love eating bell peppers, but I have never met a bell pepper that is good enough for me to get out of line to get and then get back in line for. So we said just move the salad bar, pull it over to the middle, and apply some of those other principles. Right? Use larger serving utensils for those fresh fruits and veg. Um, add a reimbursable meal component to that meal. Add some suggestive selling, you know, put some labels on it, and it increased sales by 300% in two weeks. So it works. And then this is the follow up from that video. This is the last slide. The masterminds behind the cafeteria redesign are Cornell what? University professors David Just and Brian Wansink. It's something. I want to know how they're going to basically trick teens into eating right. So what are we doing here? First thing we're going to do is we're going to take a bunch of the milk and put it in front. So Our website, or the website, smarterlunchrooms.org, has a lot of the actual studies there available, um, and these are all of our references that were up there. So thanks. I know I went a little long, but thanks for hanging in there. Um, I hope I was helpful. Yeah. Yes. You know, um, it's kind of interesting, the whole magic effect, like does it have to be stealth health or can I, can I be pretty overt about it? And in my experience, being overt about it at the upfront actually is the best because self-health implies once they figure out things are different that they were being duped and they didn't like it. 
Um, so some school districts, like for example, um, Dallas, they came out and they're like, we're doing a complete rebrand. Things are going to be different. See if you can spot the changes. And then after they did that, um, I mean, the changes were pretty sustained and there were sustained bumps in behavior change. Um, I mean, I, I do argue a little bit. I mean, there's, there's opportunity for more research, particularly in relation to the milk component, because there are some very heavy ag groups, for example, um, schools that are m more rural for some bizarre reason, you know, not so bizarre really if you think about it, have uh, stronger white milk consumption behaviors than some more urban groups. Um, and part of that is because some of these kids grew up on dairy farms, you know, they're around milk all the time. It's not so much um, a stigma thing, right? So, I mean, I'm really interested in, in the perception side. I would be really interested in looking at um, stakeholder kind of perceptions in those schools. Yeah. They were. Yeah, they were. And um, it's really interesting that you bring that up because there are some people that are like, those videos don't count anymore. Because, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm saying, like, I, I've shown this at um, different state organizations, and they're like, you need new material. Like, and I'm like, you know how much a video camera and, like, getting people out there costs? It's a very expensive process, all right? The principles stand true regardless of whether the snack is, um, you know, a low-cal Gatorade Zero or standard Gatorade. Um, but, yes, they were definitely. Although there are schools, um, I would say... Anecdotally, from what I've seen, so I've been in about 2,000 schools in the past calendar year, um, and of those, about 20% of them aren't even up to Smart Snack Reg yet. They're not there, um, and or they were for their AR, and now they're not. <laughs> so there is um, th there's some degree of dissension in the application of the policy. Any other questions, comments, concerns, stories, poems, critiques? All right, well, thank you. <laughs>